episode 12. Hello and welcome once again to an episode of the Beneath the Lamp podcast. As always, you can find us at BeneathTheLamp.com. That's where we have our blog as well as where we host the rest of our podcast episodes. If you would like to subscribe to our podcast and have these delivered directly to your device, you can head over to BeneathTheLamp.com slash subscribe. Uh, One note before we get to our episode for this week, there are a few audio problems, so please bear with us. Uh, There'll be a couple of cracks in and out. But for the most part, I think we've taken care of it. With that, let's go ahead and get to our topic. Today, we are going to discuss car culture. And like every other time, it's uh, me, I'm Justin, and we have Eric and Chris. Hello. Hello. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we want to talk about car culture, something that, uh, again, is uh, ties in with our hobbies and our interests. And uh, yeah, I think we're just going to jump right into this. So I know Chris is most tied into the culture that is cars. So uh, why don't you say things and, and stuff? <laughs> things and stuff. Yes. Uh, that's that's a fantastic intro. We stress <laughs> um, the stuff. The stuff and junk and crap. No, it's it. Yeah, I just celebrated my 40th not too long ago, and uh, I was sort of reminiscing about my journey in life. And the one of the things that has been sort of prolific throughout is doing things with vehicles. It ties back to this whole idea of car culture, which is something that I think everybody in quote unquote car culture anecdotally throws around and uh, tends to, I don't know, demonize the whole thing. Like car culture is not what it used to be. Well, yeah, but it's never been what it used to be. And in fact, it never had a thing that it used to be. It was always just, Hey, I have this car. I'm, I'm either going to fix it myself, which is one part of car culture um, or, hey, I have this car. It's not as good as I want it to be, which is another part of car culture. Car culture. Or it's a, hey, I don't know why the hell you would ever buy that car when you could buy this car that's faster, which is, a, yet again, another piece of car culture. I mean, it goes on and on. And so wherever you are with respect to how you feel about car culture, it's, it's very much the individual perspective. So as I was turning 40 and I'm thinking about all this crap, I was thinking about my journey throughout and I started out grudgingly as a, as a GM. God, I, I wouldn't even call myself an enthusiast. I, I had a, here's the reality, guys. I had a 2000 Chevy Cavalier that I felt no shame in cutting up, destroying however it needed to be destroyed in order to do what I thought would look cool. I pulled it off most of the time. And I ended up with this sort of fast and the furious style looking vehicle that had touchscreen steering wheels and car PCs and all kinds of crap in it. And to this day, I get crap for it because it was very much early 2000s. That's what you did. And then I've transitioned into this whole, like, now I'm, I'm finally a, a Volvo enthusiast, which is kind of where I would have liked to have started. And I, I do all kinds of things with them now. I don't know. I guess that's my intro. That's my saying things and stuff. Uh, I have two things that I want to say, and then I'm, I'm going to let you get back to this. Uh, first one is I find this whole conversation f- fascinating, not because I am a car enthusiast, but because I am an enthusiast of other things. And I <laughs> think it's very in- interesting how no matter what you're talking about, being it cars, being it 
books being it landscaping you always have these communities of in enthusiasts and, and it seems like we all have the same internal tensions uh, so I think this is a very interesting part of human experience to have these kind of small social gatherings over uh, mutual obsessions and is that we, yeah. we always run into the same issue so that's that's and it's been very interesting me to kind of for me to live kind of vicariously through Chris and all the things he talks about with these cars and because I know nothing about cars but I know a lot of things about different things and it's just again interesting how we're all ultimately talking about about the same stuff so that's my yeah. point one uh, point two is again through Chris I I know nothing about cars but those Volvos are damn nice looking cars so <laughs> those are my two points I I drive Jeeps but I do no work I don't even change my own oil uh, but I like those Volvos that's my ten cents no you nailed it on the head though it, it it's absolutely true every enthusiast uh, culture has has the same tensions in it. What's really striking is it doesn't necessarily always present platform to platform, and I'm speaking specifically of car culture. For example, you join a Corvette club and nobody criticizes you for doing absolutely nothing but stock stuff to your Corvette. Nobody gives you crap for modifying anything. You own a Corvette and there's just this sort of understanding that you're probably uh, in, in your anywhere between your 50s and your 70s, and you just have a Corvette. <laughs> and sometimes you ask a question about what kind of tire I should get and uh, what should I tell the shop to do with my oil changes versus go to any kind of a Subaru club, and there isn't a single thing that you can do right in that community, period. Even if it works, it was wrong. It was incorrect, and it was generally because I didn't think of it first, so therefore I'm going to tear you down for doing it before I did. It's just goofy, and it's so varied across all platforms that I actually know guys who not only have given up on any given platform, and it's usually Pontiac guys or Dodge guys, just, you know what, screw this. I don't like the people in it. I'm going to a completely different, I'm going to be a BMW guy now. It's amazing to me just how crazy and how deep the roots go. That's saying something when you have to... Uh own a BMW to find less pretentious people. <laughs> right? Zing. <laughs> but but that's the point. Like everybody in, in well, and this is just an anecdotal example. Like I, I don't actually know this story from anywhere, but this, this is very similar to what happens. So let's say you've just bought the new Dodge Challenger and it's got, you know, however to the horsepower to the wheels. And somebody's like, well, pff, yeah, but it's still a Dodge. Okay, well, I'll take that for so yeah but okay it's only got 717 horse yeah okay i'll take that too but yeah it's power but it has no handling well now you're starting to get under my skin and then just progressively goes further and further and further until you get to the point where you no longer even enjoy driving the car <laughs> that you've wanted since you were 12 and uh, you want a car that actually conforms to the attitude of that community which nine times out of ten isn't even of the community <laughs> it's just the stupidest thing well, but isn't that, again, isn't that just, and I'm trying not to make this all philosophical, but isn't that just human experience where we're, su we're such social animals and so many things that we do are just as concerned about what the outward appearance is as what we personally feel. I don't know anything 
about cars, but I know a lot about like 90s prog rock culture. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to pretend that I haven't at times in, in my life pretended to like a band more than, than I thought that I actually did because of what I perceive to be the cultural artifacts of it. No, you're so, not like, wrong. The difference, of, of course, is that something like car culture, there's a lot more that goes into it. I just have to buy a CD and listen, mm-hmm. as opposed to all of the money and sweat and tears that go into it. So I, I'd have to think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that something like car culture, because of the amount of time and effort you spend in it, the, the opinions are even stronger. Yeah, <clears throat> it's true. But you still have the eternal battle of built versus bought there's i mean it doesn't and it doesn't translate although i would arguably say that even if you're buying the fast crazy machine instead of building it yourself you've certainly worked your ass off to be able to afford it and if you can't afford it then you're certainly subjecting yourself to living in in poverty conditions in order to have this car which is also something that is not unfamiliar in this country (laughs) well it it all depends what pieces of flair you want to uh you want you want to show to people around you. I don't, I don't really, I don't, I don't really yeah. like talking about my flair. <laughs> Chris hates talking about his flair. So, Chris, I want you to. Um, a while ago, you and I and Justin were all messaging, and you were telling me, and I don't remember exactly what it was about the the internal stress between old Volvos and new Volvos. And do, do you remember what we were talking about? Yes. And I, yeah, I found because... could you just just give, give a quick rundown for for the audience because I, I found the whole discussion fascinating as kind sure. of a window in into this. Sure. So something that's a little unique to the. Volvo community is that you don't have a whole lot of reverence for where the platform came from. There's always this long-standing debate of red block versus white block. And uh, what that basically means is is that back in the day when Volvo was just coming out with, with vehicles, well, that's not fair. Let's call it the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. There was one particular engine block that they used it was called the red it's it goes from b8 b18 all the way up to b230 plus or minus a couple of letters here and there but they literally painted the block red and it was an iteration of the same four-cylinder engine that they just used for decades it was a die-hard bulletproof engine cast iron they used it in boats they used it in cars they used it in off-road vehicles they used it in everything then after call it the 900 series which I think ended in, I want to say, 94. Somebody's probably going to yell at me about that. I don't particularly like that series. At any rate, mid-90s, Volvo introduced the five-cylinder engine, which was uh, aluminum and not painted, but because it's aluminum, became the white block. They've done amazing things with this engine. Volvo has taken it to its peak capability to the point of being able to push about i don't know i think that one un, unmodified head i think you're pushing 370 380 horse i'd have to look into a couple of different forms to figure this out there, there's a number of guys who are doing more than that but they're not they're not doing it on, on things that aren't heavily modified you know what i mean so anyway between these two factions you've got the red block people who absolutely adore about vintage bubbles and then you've got the white block crew who are finally super excited about having affordable fast cars within their means and i I know guys who have six of these things sitting around just the p2 chassis the the s60r the v70r i mean i even have one 
against my better judgment, I have one. So whenever you get into these conversations with with people at either online or in person, it's always the red block versus red block owner here. You're constantly fixing things and it's leaking oil all over the place. It doesn't have enough gumption to, to push itself out of its own way. Versus if you're a white block owner, well, you're going to lose cam seals. You're going to blow up the engine. You're going to crack cylinder walls. You're steering wheel position sensors and you know all kinds of crap going in your car. It's a, it's a money pit. Nobody's ever happy. And like one of, I, th- I can honestly think of only three people in all the Volvo people that I know that live firmly in both camps. Again, it's one of those things where I can't do anything right. <clears throat> the red block community gives me shit for having uh, white blocks. The white block community gives me shit for having red blocks. And in fact, both of them give me uh, crap for doing engine swaps and, and things that are supposedly uncouth. So, how can you not take a side? Do you right? really care? I, how do I take a side? No, no, I'm I'm being I'm being facetious. Or maybe oh, it's just you. Could be. I mean, <laughs> it's occurred to me. <laughs> And I think I asked you that. I said, so where do you fall? And and you said, well, I don't. I I like them both for different reasons, which I can see somebody with, with, with my t- temperament would, would call that he- heresy. You know, how dare you? I, so. I think you'd be a red block crowder. Here, from I everything you've said, Chris, I think I would want to be. It sounds like, like I'm the type of guy, like I I hate the DH in, in baseball. I love generally bans older stuff i just it seems to me that that's that's where i would want to fall mm-hmm. even if i hated the cars i'd be like oh no i gotta be i gotta be red block right. i'm a purist amen i can be i can be opinionated about things i have no friggin clue about <laughs> your that capacity is, that is for talented. biased opinion is that astounding is, that is talent. Just we'll talk about something for for five minutes, and then I will take a, a position that I will take to my grave and die on that hill. As if you were trained as a professional in some regard to having to defend <laughs> a position. It's odd, isn't it? I live in case the listener didn't know. I live in Spearfish, South Dakota, and Spearfish is the locus of the nation's Corvette rally. And so. Uh, Late July every year, we are inundated by Corvettes. And because of that, we all hate them. They're beautiful cars. It's just you can have too much of a good good thing. But I want to go back to what you said, Chris, because I'm I'm interested now. So as far as you know, in 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 Corvette culture, are there is there a big gap between old cars and new cars or stingrays or anything else like that? Or is that high end enough that the culture doesn't get that deep? You know, mm, no, I, I don't know for, for, for certain, but I can make a couple assessments. Yeah, do it. Um, so in the core platforms defined by number, right? So the C1 Corvette's the original C2, C3 is the Stingray, C4 is the quintessential eighties cheese wedge, <laughs> uh, C5, C6 and so forth and so on. Right. C9, I believe is supposed to be the mid engine car that, uh, the C8 was really supposed to be and kind of only quasi pulled off. So with the exception of some of the newer things, it's extremely affordable to get into a Corvette. Like you can get a Stingray for a box of donuts and a sack of tacos right now. There's like it's, 15 it's, for, for, for sale right in, in town right now, if you want any. Yeah. And I bet they're, they range in price plus or minus three grand. Um, 
it depends on quality. You can, the I love the cheese wedge because that's just what it looked like. It it depends on what you can get. I just they're they're not expensive. Right. Versus like this the C the C nine is projected to be a three figure or a six figure car. Doesn't surprise me. Believe C fives are even. Well, C fives are coming down in price. Those are getting pretty reasonable. That's like when you when you think back to the period of time when the Corvette went back to looking like a really cool vehicle. Uh, that's the C five, at least in my opinion. I mean, don't get me wrong. I got a I got a small spot in my heart for the C four. It's you know every every eighties super villain in Miami had one. If it wasn't a Lamborghini or Ferrari, it was a C four Corvette. But you can still get into them pretty pretty cheap. I think in fact I think that's probably the lowest value one. So, I, sorry, getting, getting back to your, your question, my experience and the people that I've known who have had Corvettes, some of them have money, some of them don't, but they all seem to have the same opinion. They're driving a Corvette, and it doesn't really go much beyond that. So, and I'm trying not to judge here. So, are there not n- nearly the Volvo community's fight over C1 through C4? I mean, it, it's, it sounds like either you own a vet or you don't, and that's how we're going to judge. Yeah, kind of. I I don't get the impression there's an awful lot of judgment coming out of that community. I think uh, it's sort of one of those closely held secrets. It's it's supposed to be, for lack of a better term, the American supercar, of which there really haven't been until the last like five, ten years. And because of that, it's sort of stood alone in its capacity to wow people mm-hmm. and to and I don't know. It, it's I think it's kept it civil. I think it's kept the conversations in those communities, you know, comparatively a little pretty, pretty big and like, yeah, it's a, it's a helpful community from what I have experienced. Now I don't have a Corvette and I haven't spent much time in Corvette forms other than to figure out what kind of engine specs might need for the next swap. But that's about it. Do you think some of that goes back to the fact that Corvettes have been around longer and a lot of their history is steeped in, uh, in racing? And so Could you know, be. The, 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 the racing community wasn't necessarily one that was going out and doing a, you know, as much modification. I mean, the car, like you said, itself was built for that purpose. Sure. I mean, it could be. And, and I think you, you nailed it with that last part there. It's purpose built because you start thinking about like uh, Mustang forums and Mustang color culture, and it's completely different. But the Mustang is his main purpose. I mean, it was never really purpose-built to be a race car to the capacity that uh, the Corvette was. And I don't know, you might get a little flack for, for that kind of a statement. But even still, the culture, so I'm not sure. I mean, it could be. You're probably right. When, whenever the anniversary was for Ford winning uh, the Le Mans, um, there was a lot of uh, documentary um, shows put out um, around yeah, all, that, yeah. all of that. And so I... I, I watched three or four of these uh, documentaries and got a lot of the background on the uh you know the 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 wars that were had between Ferrari and uh and Ford and yeah it was fascinating to see like you said Chris I mean the the, the Mustang was never supposed to be um you know super powerful fast car it was it, you know it was built for at that time secretaries was what the documentaries had said whereas the Corvette that's what it was there for it was it was meant to be a track car Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, looking at it with like Volvos and stuff, the again, I have very little exposure to any of this. Like Eric said, mostly it's living vicariously through you. The uh, the modifications that a lot you know a lot of folks will do to, to Volvos um, obviously go in lots of different directions. But you know the dirt track racing and stuff, Volvos were never meant mm-hmm. to do that. But I'm, I'm happy they do. 
Yeah. Well, and uh, you know, what's really funny about that too is like when you compare American racing to European racing, you, you have to make room for F1, which is a standalone. There was no actual stock car racing scenario back in the day. Uh, I mean, they would do the off-road stuff, and I think that's the birthplace of rally for the most part. But those guys would rally anything, mm. literally anything. They, they'd rally a, a Peugeot, for Christ's sake. In fact, Peugeot actually has a few pennants to that end. But yeah, uh, Volvo, <laughs> you don't see many racers in the Volvo world until after what you would consider the prime of that particular platform. Like right now, a lot of the amateur circuits are racing the hell out of the 200 series and the seven and the 800 series Volvos. Like you see them making making waves for some of the more modern platforms and the 200 series, of course, is that good old fashioned refrigerator style body style that Volvo came out with. Stopped making it in 93 and it's still putting cars from 2000s to shame to that end. I don't know. It's it's tough to say. Anything European that has been adopted in the American sort of culture, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go so far as to say that it gets perverse um, or it's it's taken out of context, but something definitely happened to it when it crosses the borders into this country. And I think that's probably the most interesting thing that I've seen. Like, so since I became a, a diehard Volvo nut, I've I've sort of had this this goal to have not just the, the sedan, the daily driver, but to have a sports car, to have the the uh, hot rod, to have the chopped up car, the rat rod, and the off road. Like I want to cover all my bases, right? So what I've done is I've joined just any kind of platform in Volvo that I can find that has a presence on Facebook. I'm joining their groups. So if I take two of those groups and I compare them, uh, let's just say I'll take um, the, the 240 group versus the C. 303 group, which is the 4x4 military vehicle that I've been trying to pick up for years. Most of the people in the 303 group are from Sweden and Germany and, and European countries. And some of the things that they do to their vehicles are just like right up my alley, creative solutions to problems that exist because they don't have part support. Whereas if you compare those to the people in, uh, in, in more of the American-based cultures, it's really easy to make this parallel with more modern platforms, but we'll stick to the 240 because even that is has got significantly better part support here in America than it does anywhere else in the world. The conversations that ha- that are had between these people in these two groups are just ridiculously different. By and large, people outside of the country are way more civil and apt to help you. So, okay, wait. Volvo is a Swedish make, but you get better part support in the United States? Yep, absolutely. So- is I mean, is that are they actually making parts over here, or I mean, how do you explain that? It's like the Armageddon quote: "Russian space station, American space station, all parts made in Japan." Yeah, well, that's <laughs> what I see. I find that fascinating. I, that that really interests me. So somebody's <clears throat> hoarding Volvo parts to a large degree. Yeah, like I will say, some of my older. Like I've got a 66 and a 70 and finding parts for those is getting a little tricky. And I have had to go across these to get certain things. But for the most part, everything I've ever had to replace in my car, I've been able to get online from an American source. And when you have these conversations with people across seas, oftentimes like here's a really, really good example. I picked up a car that I was for the sole purpose of parting out. 
It was a 1978 262C Coupe Bertone. Very rare car, only roughly, give or take, the just, just under 9,000 of them were ever made, and most of them ended up in America. There's a couple of guys that are restoring them across seas, and I've had an opportunity to ship parts to them, to two different people over there. Like the entire interior of, of, of my old car, I sent to one guy in, in Gothenburg, and I sent a bunch of interior plastic and trim pieces to another guy in uh, Denmark. They couldn't get these parts, and they're not that that crazy, strange pieces of, of things to acquire here in the States. Like I can hop up online right now and probably find seat covers for that car, no problem. But they're paying ridiculous amounts to get them imported into the own the country in, in which they were produced. They were one of my f- favorite bands is from Gothenburg. So see, that's where we can combine. And uh, I want to keep it going. This so it's. Were just more of these cars imported into the U.S. years ago, and so people are just parting them out now. Is uh, that is that why? I never really looked into it, but I would suspect yes. I mean, I do know that when the 240 came into this country, it wasn't really all that well received in, in Europe, but it was swallowed up whole here. Well, you brought up Japanese cars. I mean, is there something similar with a Toyota? I don't see the Civic being something that goes over or, or or the Corolla being super popular in Japan, but you know, here in the U S you can't keep those things on the lot. Yeah. I think our country purchases cars. We have a tendency. Not if Trump can to help hurt. it. Okay, <laughs> oh, don't hey. no! Come on now. Sorry. I, oh, come on. Um, <laughs> We're talking we have... global trade. I've, I've got to do my anti Merkelish spiel, mercantilist spiel. Come on. Anyway, go on. Our, our country goes through, cars like it goes through clothes in this country it's way more popular well arguably it's way more popular to to lease a car or at least have a car in a similar time frame that would at least would benefit them than it is to own a car my neighbor across the street love the guy dearly shows up with a brand new vehicle every three years and one asks and one wonders why don't you just lease and finally he's like you know what you're right why don't I just lease? I know I'm going to get tired of it in three years, so I'll, I'll lease it. You don't see that, n- not nearly as prolifically in other countries. I think that has a lot to do with it. Well, and I, so here's my question, Chris, and I, I agree. I mean, it seems like the average American lifespan of, of car ownership is what, two, two three years? Um, yeah. Is that has that been created by our frankly insane consumer credit s- system, or was our credit system created to match the fact that uh, Americans tire of their cars quickly? I don't know what which came first, to be honest, because there's another element that you have to consider that cars, uh, when they first, when, when when vehicles became a thing in this country, they weren't actually built to last longer than six, seven years, right? Like you see classics, Model A's and Model T's and things, but these are cars that have, for lack of a better uh, phrase, been rebuilt with with brand new manufactured parts in most cases. Eventually, you got into a situation where cars were built to kind of last, like when you start talking 50s and 60s. But even then, everything you see on the road has, has been a re, reproduction, uh, somehow rebuilt with brand new body panels and things like that it's so it's tough for me to say whether or not it was the consumerism that took over first or if it was a mindset that we got into because cars just don't last like they used to in fact it was cars that came into this country that ended up lasting longer that sort of pushed the envelope for our own internal manufacturing processes which 
I mean, aside from moving to full aluminum chassis and, and things, really hasn't gotten much better. I want to be cynical and, and pragmatic and say that you're probably right. It's the consumerism piece, but part of me also wonders if it's just not the nature of the, that particular beast. Well, we have absolutely covered every inch of car knowledge I have in the last half an hour. <laughs> Especially with regards to car culture. As that, I that's that's exactly right. Excellent. Well, um, yeah, I mean, unless you have anything else, Chris, I have nothing to add. Eric was able to defend <clears throat> positions that he previously didn't hold, and I wasn't even going to go that far. Positions I didn't even know existed. So. I found a hill, I fell across it, and now I plan to die here. Uh, yeah. I'm just, I'm just glad we didn't get into the whole uh, what are you, what are you doing to your vehicles these days? Conversation. Just, just we'll get gone. to that. We may do, we may do a live video feed, and you can just w- walk us through it. Oh, that'd be fun. Seriously, I'm all over it. All right, thanks, gentlemen. Perfect. Thanks, guys. See ya.